I discovered something in the last couple of weeks uh, that I think a lot of first-time preachers discover. There is a huge emotional delta between the day you accept a preaching assignment and the night before you actually have to preach. <laughs> so last night, as I was praying for the Lord to end my life then and there, <laughs> he told me something, and it was, it was actually very heartwarming. He reminded me that uh, over for the last 10 years or more, I've been sitting under some pretty good preaching, and that osmosis is one of his natural laws, so we're going to let that work this morning. <clears throat> this morning I want to uh, look at a sliver of scripture that you might find somewhat brutal. The larger context between the interaction between Jael and Sisera is the book of Judges, and that's that circular narrative in the Old Testament where Israel gives in to sinful selfishness and willfulness, they are disciplined by God through the oppression of tyrants and enemies. Eventually, they can't take it anymore. They cry uncle. And under the leadership of a judge, they repent. They then go ahead and gain victory over their enemies, and then they enjoy a season of peace and prosperity, only to eventually give in again and uh, enjoy another fling with rebellion. When Jael does business with Sisera, Israel is being judged by the prophet Deborah. And it's facing the Canaanite army of King Jabin. It is as lethal a fighting force as the people of God had ever encountered. And needless to say, there were a lot of Hebrew knees knocking at the prospect of having to go at it with Jabin's army, uh, especially those troops under the command of Sisera. Sisera was Jabin's top military man, and he had formed an artillery of iron chariots. And um, as they had before and would again, Israel cowered in the face of a superior military force until Deborah summoned this nation to battle. Judges 4, which we will read momentarily, it recounts this confrontation. But it also does something else. It shows up Barak, Israel's general, as being less than resolute. The very fact that a woman, Deborah, is exercising leadership over this patriarchal culture is telling. What does it tell us? It tells us that the men of Israel, in abandoning their faith, well, they also lost their nerve. So Barak's hesitancy to mix it up with Sisera is actually indicative of this. And Deborah, who was a woman of firm faith, a woman of God, she puts a little steel in Barak's spine, but not without conferring upon him a healthy dose of shame. And that is where we find Jael. This is an extensive reading, and uh, we're going to be reading from Judges chapter 4. If, if you are using a Bible underneath the seats, it begins on page 192. <clears throat> Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harosheth, Hagoyim because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Hamah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go! Take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, 
you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zanenim, near Kadesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to the Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Herosheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasha Thagoyim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between King Jabin between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened up a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone there? Say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer, and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Just then, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Gracious God, the world, our, our human race, is corrupted, is full of conflict, it's full of violence and death. As your people, we seek to follow your example and draw out peace from where there is hostility, health from where there is disease, liberation from where there is bondage. May your spirit enable us to live and act redemptively as we advance the kingdom of our Lord and of your Christ. Amen. <clears throat> like uh, Cicero, I'm a little thirsty, so pardon me. <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, before I came to uh, here it goes. Before I came to Grace Redeemer Church uh, over ten years ago, uh, I had heard preaching from the Old Testament, but I have to confess it always sounded a little disjointed. It always went something like this: Israel was behaving badly. God got mad and punished them. Israel saw the error of their ways, and they turned around and pleased God, and things went back to normal. By the way, believe in Jesus. That was the, the disconnect I always sensed. Oh, by the way, believe in Jesus on your way at the door. Um, it wasn't until I came to Grace Redeemer, I heard Peter preach on Jacob in 2008. I don't remember whether it was a series or a uh, single sermon, but it wasn't until then that I realized and appreciated the organic unity that is the word of God. Israel's triumphs and tragedies are instructive for us. They show in, in fierce battles and 
catastrophic supernatural events. The stark difference between faith and faithfulness. They give us an earthbound physical depiction of the spiritual warfare that those of us in Christ are called to fight. Peter tells the Corinthians, for example, that Israel's wilderness sufferings and hardships, those were for our edification. He says, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. It was for our benefit. I want to make a suggestion before I continue. If you're not a believer and you hear me say spiritual warfare and you roll your eyes, keep a couple of things in mind. I'd ask you to consider what you do believe. Consider those convictions that you do hold true. If you believe that, uh, if you despise injustice and want to see social inequities corrected, if you hate bullies and root for the little guy, if you believe we owe something to those less fortunate, then you'll admit to something. You'll admit to that there are certain universal principles that govern everyone. And so you'll admit that there are also people that do not conform to those principles, and you'll admit to a conflict in this world that we live in between good and evil and right and wrong. And I just ask you to keep that concession in mind because the warfare I talk about is not against a little troll with horns and a tail. It is serious, existential, and eternal, with eternal consequences. So bear that in mind as you listen to this. If you are a believer, if you are one of my brothers and sisters in Christ, I will confess that I, as many of you do, shrink from this whole matter of spiritual warfare. And I do so for three reasons. Number one, it seems bizarre and alien. It seems like this is Christian jihad, or this is a Christian sanitized version of voodoo. Um, you might think of spiritual warfare as loud rebukes and emotional condemnations. You might think of violent exorcisms and people foaming at the mouth and struggling. Well, those things will happen. But let's be honest. There are huge investments of time and energy for a fallen angel. Most of us in this sanctuary have fallen prey to the enemy from time to time, but it's usually from his subtlety, not from his menace. Secondly, it, it, it actually seems dangerous to tangle with a powerful being like Satan, right? And in fact, it is. Acts 19 tells us of a story where the uh, sons of a Jewish high priest try to expel an evil spirit. And what happens? They get their clocks cleaned. And they're severely injured and humiliated. And it bears noting, though, that these sons, the seven sons of Sceva, were not in Christ. They were simply dropping his name. He was a friend of a friend. There's a difference here. Those of us in Christ are much stronger positionally than those, of us who, just, than those who just use his name as a battering ram. Third... Warfare, the whole idea of warfare just seems to fly in the face of peace. Wasn't Jesus the Prince of Peace? Isn't he? What did our resurrected Savior say to his disciples? Peace be with you. We find peace in Christ. Why disturb it? Far from disturbing the peace, though, that the Lord confers upon us. Waging war against the enemy protects and confirms that peace. Why? Because when we wage war against the enemy, we are at the center of his will. We are doing what he wants us to do. When Jesus, uh, why did Jesus come after all? 1 John 3.8 tells us, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Don't fear spiritual warfare, brothers and sisters. Embrace it. 
Not for the sake of your own soul. That's secure. Do it for the sake of the lost. As Deborah and Barak and Jael secured peace for Israel, albeit temporarily, so Jesus does for us for eternity. Peace that's beyond our understanding from him who overcomes the world. That said, how does Jael serve as a model to us, good soldiers of Christ, this side of the resurrection? Our warfare is different from hers, no? Let's look at uh, what does Ephesians 6 have to say? You thought you'd escape Ephesians this week, didn't you? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Wow. Well, that begs the question. What does the woman with the mallet and the tent peg have to do with our own conflict with evil? To some, Jael is the Lara Croft of Scripture. If you're a little bit older, maybe she's one of Charlie's angels, or even Batgirl. She is a can-do, action-oriented, femme fatale. In fact, Judges 4 is so spare of detail that we can almost define Jael however we want to. What we do know is that her husband was a Kenite and that the Kenites were the clan of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. So there were solid relational and social ties with Israel. And if you want to explore those, you can look at uh, uh, chapters like Exodus 18 and Numbers 10 to discover their shared history. Yet we also know that her people were nominally at peace with Sisera. And that could be because these nomadic Bedouins were very talented metalsmiths, and they might have had a role in either producing or maintaining those dreaded iron chariots. We don't know, of course. At any rate, they were enjoying an extended stay in the theater of battle. When Sisera showed up, the larger group of Kenites, those not affiliated with Haber, uh, they settled in Judah. But Haber and his people were attracted to Kadesh. Jael, therefore, she was in the right place at the right time to encounter a solitary, disarmed, and thoroughly spent Sisera. She did not need extraordinary powers of discernment to know a beaten man when she saw him. And that is the first of her three warfare fundamentals. Her enemy was already defeated. Verses 15 through 17 record this battle tide turning in Israel's favor, and that's exactly how Deborah predicted it to Barak, though Barak had received it with some anxiety. But by this time... Barak found his courage, and he was in hot pursuit of Sisera. Chapter 5, the next chapter, is a song of Deborah and Barak looking back and lauding their victory, and it gives a hint of how they won. It says, From the heavens the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away, the age-old river, the river Kishon. March on, my soul, be strong. Then thundered the horse's hooves. Galloping, galloping, go his mighty steeds. So as he had in the days of Noah, and as he did at the Red Sea, God used a flood to do away with his enemies. Psalm 29.10 tells us, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. So the mighty captain of Jabin's host was scared. He lost his army. His chariots were immobilized. Jael could see his weariness and sense his desperation. His relief, no doubt, was palpable when she invited him in for rest and for refuge. She was nurturing and he was growing a little more confident that he may just live to fight another day. He asked for water, but she gave him milk. Tryptophan-rich goat's milk, probably. (laughs) His thirst slaked, he all but presented himself to Jael for execution. Our spiritual warfare is premised 
on the defeat of Satan as as an accomplished fact. John Piper asserts, when Christ died for our sins, Satan was disarmed and defeated. The one eternally destructive weapon that he had was stripped from his hand, namely his accusation before God that we are guilty and should perish with him. When Christ died, that accusation was nullified. That accusation, that's our enemy's iron chariot. It's immobilized. He can't play prosecutor anymore. He has been disbarred. We've been studying Ephesians over the last weeks and months and talking about what it means to be blessed in Christ. And remember, at the beginning of chapter 1, it tells us that our victory was settled before the foundations of the world. And that victory was won on the cross, and justice will be served when the Lord returns. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, we can ask Jael. What is her second warfare principle? She realized that her enemy was still dangerous. Why contend against a defeated general who could barely stay on his own feet? Was she fighting for his own, her, her own life? Was Sisera there to kill her? Hardly. Heber was at peace with Sisera and Jabin, as verse 17 tells us. Jael could have nursed Sisera back to health and gained favor for it. However, if you ever choose, and I, I advise you to, uh, read the entire book of Judges, you'll discover something. The root of all Israel's trouble was its own hedging, cutting corners, often to employ cheap labor. Let's rewind to some verses in chapter 1. I'm going to read through uh, verses 28 through 32. And um, this has got some uh, linguistic booby traps in it, so bear with me. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron and Nahalol. So these Canaanites lived among them, but Zebulun did, did subject them to forced labor. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Akko or Sidon or Achlab or Aksib or Helba or Aphek or Rehob. The Asherites lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land because they did not drive them out. You see a theme there. You see a pattern. Well, look, we're all guilty of hedging in areas large and small, right? No, doctor, I didn't take all the antibiotics because I was feeling better on the third day. This is what we do. We don't follow the course through because we're, we're, we're focusing on our own feelings. God wanted the land purified, yet Israel contented herself with taming it. And in the end, they didn't even do that. Because instead, they were enticed by and then subjected to the detestable practices of the Canaanites that God hated so much. They'd have to cry uncle again and again for God to liberate them. You know, it makes me think of Luke chapter 9, verse 51, when Jesus uh, began the journey toward his ultimate uh, passion. It says... At the time, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He went. What if he decided to hedge? What if he decided, look, I've spent the last three years preaching, teaching, healing, delivering, ministering. I had no place to lay my head. I had no place to be comfortable. I think I've paid my dues. Where would we be if Jesus hedged? Well, back to chapter 4. Jael's killing of Sisera was a rebuke to Barak, and it was by extension to the men of Israel. It went further than that, though. It was a rebuke to Israel herself 
for not finishing the task with which the Lord their God entrusted them. They were content with what they won, even though their mission remained unaccomplished. So when Jael saw that Sisera was down, she did something different. She nevertheless sought, she sought trouble and determined to take him out. No hedging, no half measures. This woman, Jael, crushed his head. She crushed his head as the offspring of the woman in Genesis 3.15 would do to the serpent. Genesis 3.15 reads, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. There's a funny thing about serpents, especially venomous ones. You might have heard this story a few years ago. I think it was 2014. Uh, there was a story out of Guangdong Province, China, where a high-end chef named Peng Fan was preparing a local delicacy, cobra soup. To my Asian brothers and sisters, I love you. You have been hospitable to me and introduced me to wonderful cuisines that I had not known before. If you choose ever to serve me Asian uh, cobra soup, um, I'm afraid I'm going to have to get up from the table and leave. I'm going to have to resign from the session and leave the church and move out of state. Fair warning. Uh, I'm sure it's good. I'm sure it's good. Anyway, after severing the head from the body, the chef, Peng Fan, began dicing up the snake. When out of the blue, the cobra's head struck and bit Mr. Peng injecting its still toxic venom, killing the chef within minutes. Now, those who study snakes for a living, they'll tell you that this tragedy was totally predictable. They tell us that the bite reflex in a venomous snake works for hours after a snake dies. This is why if you live in rural communities uh, in much of the south or the Ozarks or the far west and you're used to killing rattlesnakes, the standard operating procedure is to pulverize the head or to plow it under the ground so it can't threaten anybody walking by later. To leave it be is to invite danger. So we know from the serpent that death can be incremental or it could be instantaneous. In any case, in the case of our enemy, it's inevitable. He and his emissaries would indeed expire without life support. They still get their nutrition from sinful flesh and from a corrupt world. As long as those nutrients flow, this thing we call spiritual warfare, will continue. Our aim is to cut off that sustenance with the tools God graciously provides. The question is, are we trained in the use of those weapons? As Jael was. That was her third principle of warfare. Jael was trained for battle. If you're a fan of 1980s movies, as I am, you might know this mantra very well. Horse stance. Wax on, wax off. Sand the floor, paint the fence up, down. You remember from the Karate Kid, Mr. Miyagi giving young Daniel LaRusso all these mundane chores that turned out to be exhausting. He did it to develop the boy's muscle memory and his reflexes. In the same way, you might know this saying from the legendary martial artist Bruce Lee. He said, I fear not the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks once, but I fear the man who practiced one kick 10,000 times. How many times would a nomadic Bedouin woman have to take down and put up her tent in a lifetime? She had to secure tents in all kinds of soil, sandy soil, rocky soil, clay loamer. Sometimes the stakes went in smoothly. Other times she encountered resistance. It required greater strength, or it required a more efficient employment of gravity and momentum. Now, if Heber had multiple wives, that tent would have been Jael's alone. But even if she shared the tent with Heber, 
it was her responsibility as the woman to pitch and strike the tent whenever they moved on. If it served as a family residence with children, it might have had multiple compartments, been quite large. That's a lot of tent pegs. So suffice it to say that Jael didn't have to take any practice strokes before the one that mattered. King David said, Praise be to the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. Christian, how goes your training? You know the tools at hand from Ephesians 6 that we have. Truth, righteousness, faith, salvation, the word of God. Are you deft and agile with these weapons or are they a little unwieldy and uncomfortable? Powers of darkness are in retreat, but they're firing their weapons all the way to their doom. Are we prepared to repel and repulse them? Uh, Peter from this pulpit and the session of this church continually advocate a consistent and disciplined prayer life, as well as regular feasting on Holy Scripture, which is what Paul calls the sword of the Spirit. We don't do this. this these are not dreary exercises to keep you off the streets. It's enablement. It is power to strike a blow against the enemy in the service of our Savior. No, they won't earn you salvation. Absolutely not. But they make you a fit and potent conduit of salvation. Spiritual disciplines empower us, and they empower us in three ways. I'm sure they empower us in more, but I, given the time and given my limited cranium, uh, I'll give you three. They empower us for sanctification. They empower us to surrender every area of our lives in progressive sanctification, yielding to the divine will, mortifying sin, humbling ourselves, restraining destructive impulses. Maybe you need to apologize to a spouse or a loved one today, but pride is preventing you. Maybe you're trashing the boss behind your back or gossiping about a coworker or padding the expense account, but fear is stopping you from confessing. Maybe you're just feeling sorry for yourself and kind of wallowing in it. Or maybe it's time for counseling and you're sort of dreading making that phone call. See, without ongoing contact with our Lord and with his word, you'll remain in those gripping emotions which are from the evil one. And you'll make no progress toward reconciliation or healing. Intercession is another area where spiritual disciplines can help us. They help us to intercede with the love of Christ to those who need it. Maybe they're inside this fellowship or maybe they're on the outside at work or at home or at school. Lending an ear to somebody, running errands, bringing a meal, especially praying on behalf of the sick and the hurting. They're all effective assaults on the spiritual forces of wickedness that feed on isolation and self-absorption. Finally, uh, it enables us to worship in spirit and truth. Brothers and sisters, God is eager for you to understand your inheritance in Jesus Christ. He is the executor, and we're the beneficiaries. It's Satan's desire that our understanding of our reward remains shallow and ineffective. Worship, whether corporate or individual, is so much sweeter when we gain insight and knowledge about our undeserved favor as adopted sons and daughters of God. It's also that much more binding on, on the enemy. The Apostle John the Revelator saw a vision of the defeat of Satan. He said in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. In Christ, we have at hand just what we need to capture the spiritual ground that he already won for us. The question for us is, do we love our lives so much as Israel did during the time of the judges that we will allow the enemy to share that ground? Will we hedge and, and leave him there to wreak havoc? 
robbing us of joy and diminishing our effectiveness as ambassadors? Or will we fight like Jael until the final stronghold is conquered? I mentioned that there is not a lot of detail in this chapter, chapter 4 of Judges. And so whenever there isn't, I, I tend in my mind to fill in the empty spaces. And I imagine after Jael had everything cleaned up, Heber came home for dinner. And recognizing the closeness of the Kenites to the Israelites, I imagine the conversation goes something like this. So, Jael, what happened today? What happened, he asks. What happens any day? <laughs> Look, all I want to know is all you want to know. For 15 years of marriage, I barely get a grunt out of you. Now you're the inquiring blacksmith. It's a simple question, Jael. Do me a favor, Heber. Let's go back to the old arrangement. I ask the questions, you grunt and we eat. It works for us for 15 years. And now he's suddenly the great conversationalist. Oh, I need a wife like this, like I need a hole in the head. <laughs> well, even though we don't know a lot about her, Jael was definitely instrumental in the deliverance of Israel. I want to end by looking at that victory song in chapter 5 again. Deborah and Barak gave Jael her due. They gave her her due, and then some. Verses 26 and 27 read, Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell, there he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell. Dead. Not to put too fine a point on it. Is it me, or didn't chapter 4 tell us that Jael did the deed while he was sleeping deeply? Yet she's memorialized in this chapter as one who went toe-to-toe with this powerful man and brought him down. She was immortalized beyond what her life merited, beyond what her works merited. Well, our precious Lord Jesus does that with us. He suffered his own life to be taken, so we likewise will be exalted above and beyond our deserving. He's well worth contending for. Not for the sake of our souls. Again, he won that war for us on the cross. It is for the sake of the world that we must fight like Jael. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our hearts are glad that you have defeated the enemy of our souls. Holy Spirit, we pray for the strength and the will and the desire to spread the love of Christ with all the tools he provides. Displace our fear with faith and our complacency with urgency so that the good work you began in us will reach full growth. To the glory of our God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.